Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-editor of Film Comment. This week, I'm on the ground in Berlin, Germany, where the 2024 Berlinale kicked off on February 15th. The festival runs through February 25th, and this year's lineup features new works by Mati Diop, Olivier Assayas, Bruno Dumont, Sai Ming Liang, Hong Sang-soo, Ruth Beckerman, and many other filmmakers. Throughout the week, the Film Comment crew will be reporting on each day's new premieres at the Berlinale through podcasts, dispatches, and interviews. So make sure to subscribe to the Film Comment Letter and the Film Comment Podcast to keep up with all our coverage of this year's Berlinale. All right, so this is the final Berlinale podcast of the Film Comment series this year. I have with me Giovanni. Uh, yeah, I'm Giovanni Marchini Camia. I'm a critic and programmer based in Berlin. Jordan. And I'm Jordan Kronk, critic and programmer from LA. And I'm Beatrice Loiza, a critic based in New York. I thought we would start with kind of, for me, what has been the most substantial film I've seen in the last few days, which is Direct Action by Ben Russell and Guillaume Caillou. Um, and Jordan and I saw it together. We were there for all three hours and 36 minutes, not including the intro and Q&A, which added uh, another chunk of time. And Jordan, you are about to interview the filmmakers also for Film Comment. Um, do you want to just describe the premise of the film? Uh, yeah. Uh, broadly speaking, uh, it is a observational documentary about... Uh, the Zone de Defend uh, collective in France. They're a eco-activist uh, collective who've been, I guess, operating for like, what, 15 years or so. Um, but this film isn't really a... It's a broadly speaking about them organizing to uh, do a de- demonstration because of a, a, a reservoir and a preservation uh initiative in France um and um but it it takes a long time to get to the actual demonstration which comes kind of toward the end and most of the film is more uh daily activities within the collective cooking farming uh reading poetry um so it is shot in very stately static images by Ben Russell and it uh very contemplative these are like eight to ten minute shots each um of not much dialogue or anything for about the first couple hours and then it starts to in the second half details start to come to the fore about what the group is all about and what they're organizing and then it ends up uh with them going out on this uh like rally demonstration which turns into a uh like a war zone type situation with the police. Um, and yeah, so it builds to a very powerful and like uh, sort of shocking climax, but it's very like uh, 
demanding for the first, I don't know, two, two and a half hours probably, but also very beautiful. Um, ben Russell is a very well-regarded experimental filmmaker from the U.S. And um, this movie is much more, con- not controlled, he always has a lot of control in his films, but like it's less stylistically uh, kind of, uh, I don't know, diverse. This is very like almost basic observational filmmaking um but i think that helps kind of uh immerse you in that world and yeah but it's very powerful and yeah one of the best things i've seen as well yeah i i totally agree and if listeners can hear doors kind of slamming (laughs) incessantly in the background it's a function of the spot we've been able to find to record uh but yeah i think that the film took me by surprise i mean i was fascinated to see the combination of Ben Russell and this subject. He's not one to make expositional films. And you would, you know, I saw a four-hour film about the Zad. Um, I was curious what it would be like. I think one would expect a film about this movement to have a lot of information and to have a lot of exposition and background and history. And it's actually surprisingly, like Jordan, you were just saying, just a film of sustained observation. And in on its own, the observational style isn't radical, but the fact that it's applied to the subject makes the film feel completely unusual, very arresting. And the fact that the first three hours are about these everyday scenes of this community of people who, one of the famous things the Zad did in recent years is that they became an occupation movement and they occupied a piece of land where the government wanted to build an airport and they resisted eviction and the construction of the airport for several years. Not clear to me if that the three hours are shot on that. They are. Oh, I'm not sure exactly. I was just going to say that. Yeah, that's only like briefly alluded to in the film. Like none of this information is actually there, which is interesting. Like the program notes give you more information than the film does. (laughs) No, really. Yeah. And so... I don't, I don't even know if that's where these scenes are shot, but to me, those scenes felt so special and kind of utopian because instead of showing the fight in, in the more kind of predictable terms of confrontations, you know, that a radical movement engages in, they show you a glimpse of what they're fighting for. And what they're fighting for is to live this shared communal life away from the structures of capitalism, away from the structures that exploit the earth, instead living in harmony with the earth and with each other, with a different experience of time, because living a capitalistic, individualistic life has a particular experience of time. And what these long shots capture is a different experience of time where things move slowly and you have time to enjoy, you know, you have time to take pleasure in the surroundings and in tactile labor. I mean, there's a John Dielman-esque kind of long shot of just like a pair of hands kneading dough that, like most of the shots in this film, goes on for maybe 10 minutes, 7 to 10 minutes. And I did find myself zoning in and out a little bit, sometimes uh, taking some little naps. Uh, But I don't think that that's outside of the realm of what the effect of these scenes is meant to be. And, you know, what's really special is the way Ben Russell brings his avant-garde viewpoint to these scenes, because the way he frames them, which is something you brought up yesterday, you know, it's it's, um, limbs and it's torsos or like close-ups that don't really give you the full picture of what's happening, but really zero in on a particular activity and action, repetition, you know, that sort of thing. So it's really like 
stealing time uh, in a way. And then, of course, the war zone scene comes about. And it's also shot in the same way. It's like a semi-static shot, though there are changes in angles. It's uninterrupted. And it's kind of a tableau. But you just stay there for this whole time. And you see this confrontation erupt between the protesters and the police. There's tear gas and they're shouting and throwing things. It really does feel like a kind of war. And it's so unsettling. And to see, first of all, a state unleash this violence on its own citizens, you know, and to see the courage with which people just enter the fire. You know, they know the police are going to be there. They come prepared and they go straight into the fire and they fight tanks with rocks, which is like the classic uh, image of contemporary, you know, repression and occupation. They ride in on uh, tractors because a lot of them are farmers. The collective, uh, I guess, recruits are like brought in a lot of the local farmers who are resistant to this uh, initiative as well. Um, but yeah, as I said yesterday as well, like the last uh, scene is really the one scene that has any kind of like context for their project. And a couple of women in that scene like kind of detail what they're all about. But in a lesser film, you would probably get that very early on uh, to kind of set the scene. Whereas in this film, like one of the first shots is a like a 10 minute image of a watchtower, you know, so it kind of sets the mood right away that you're like into just like kind of sit and meditate with these images and ben's films are always very um he likes to bring you into a trance state through what cinema can do image wise usually his films are very very uh musical and things like that and they kind of work on like more of a synesthetic level which is this film's much more like contemplative and it brings you in maybe by different means but it has like a similar effect overall well um we can talk about another film that i guess is about constructions and and destruction and construction I guess um, and our relationship with land and the structures around us this sounds as vague as the film itself I'm afraid but I'm talking about Architecton by Viktor Kosakovsky which is uh, a documentary that's in competition that Gio and I I think had some similar feelings about uh, Giovanni do you want to say a little about this film Sure. So yeah, as you said, it's a documentary, the bulk of which is made up of sequences that one could charitably describe as operatic or rhapsodic. Uh, it basically it's a lot of drone footage. And charitably as bombastic. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a lot of drone footage, a lot of extreme close-ups, extreme. Um, extreme um, slow motion and very bombastic music accompanying these and it the shots are a lot of them of rocks <laughs> like there's there's sides of mountains being blasted and mines and so you have the bits of rock flying through the air with smoke and light and because of the extreme slow motion and you're in the middle of it it kind of looks like an asteroid belt and in space, if you like. Then there's other sequences that are shot in the Ukraine where you see the uh, destruction of cities. Other scenes shot in uh, Turkey where you see also cities be, uh, destroyed by the recent earthquake. And then much more peaceful and gorgeous sequences in the middle of the countryside where you see ancient Roman structures also in Turkey. And every once in a while, 
el cut to this to the garden of this Italian architect called uh, Michele De Lucchi, who's in his garden with two workers who are building a circle in his garden and some sort of new agey project that he's got going there. And so yeah, what's the point of all these things? Uh, it is revealed yeah, it, at it, the it, end. It takes a, a while. post-credits twist. <laughs> it, it takes a while for the point to become apparent. Because yeah. for, uh, for, for most of the film, basically, the filmmaker Kosakowski juxtaposes the gorgeous ancient ruins with the crappy current co uh, constructions uh, it's like the film is kind of a, a treatise against concrete he rages against concrete as a shitty material and uh, that the buildings will last an average of 40 years and when, when you say rages it's one sentence at the end of the film to be yeah, there are a couple sentences and the, here and, and there and, yeah and the architect keeps like walking past modern buildings and being like ugh this is ugly and then you get a, a shot of a gorgeous temple for the gods and uh, yeah, there's some really offensive and reactionary juxtapositions there. There's one that struck me in particular is they're in Lebanon at, uh, at Baalbek at this um, uh, site where there's these megaliths, which are these gigantic blocks of rock that were carved in a way that I think modern um, scientists can't make sense of. And so you have, again, the architect talking about how amazing this construction is. And then he makes a sarcastic comment about, like, and this is what we call progress as the camera pans upwards and has a look at the civilization around it, which is a really densely populated residential area of, yeah, not very nice looking buildings. But how can you make that juxtaposition? I mean, like, how do you gloss over all the socioeconomic reality that is there just to make a point of they don't build them like they used to <laughs> i i don't know it's really wild and the shots of of ukraine are particularly offensive because what is it saying is it saying that had they been built like marble out of marble they would have withstood the bombs or is it saying here's an opportunity for rebuilding everything out of marble i don't know it's it, there's barely any words in the documentary, so it's one of those things, documentaries that gives you space to come up with your own conclusions. But all my conclusions were really negative, basically that it was an offensive, condescending, reactionary film until the end where there's an epilogue where Kosakovsky himself shows up in front of the camera and as if he knew that that is the message the film gives you for an hour and a half or more, he has to include a sentence where he literally says, we have to come up with new ways for a new era. So apparently the, the beautiful ancient ruins were not the answer. I don't know what the answer is. It's maybe the circle that the architect built in his garden, which no human is ever meant to walk into so that nature can take it back. Oh. I have no idea how that applies to and modern civilization. And the architect mentioned that he builds like the cheap residential uh, structures too and and i mean assuming pockets those checks exactly and he's know? in this big villa clearly he has a lot of money and he builds this silly circle and muses about improving the world while at the same time literally at the same time he's building shitty art, uh, skyscrapers in milan and pocketing a fat check right yeah i mean i really don't have much to add i feel like when i saw the film my initial reaction was just boredom 
And I mean, I just found it so boring and silly. You know, you were saying that you the first half of the film was making you laugh because it's so pretentious. You see all these like slowed down shots of rocks with this bombastic, a word I used earlier, music. It really in, um, made me think of like a cheesy trailer for some superhero sci-fi movie where, you know, the voiceover goes like on a planet far, far away, you know, the forces of good and evil or something. It's like, that is the vibe of these scenes. And I just found it silly and and uninteresting. But then when you think more about the little bits of discursivity in the film, they actually do feel pretty reactionary. And yeah, I mean, I think it's like reducing so many different political and economic realities to some kind of abstract statement on beauty and materiality is just it's just ex extraordinarily pretentious uh you know and i'm yeah i'm kind of surprised to see this film in the competition um both because i don't like it and because it's a strange fit for competition too you know i could have seen it in forum or something i mean i think the a24 logo at the beginning might have something to do with that <laughs> yeah um and his previous film, I mean, Gunda was a quite popular film, so I feel like just that name recognition is what allowed that. No, I mean, he's been around. He's, he's ha He has a few Oscar nominations. Viva Nazantipodas was also a film that made the rounds. Aquarella was kind of yes. successful. This but is meant to be the last uh, installment of the trilogy together with Aquarella and Antipodas. Okay, I see. Yeah. But, you know, this is what I'm going to leave listeners with if you want to see a movie about rocks go watch deborah stratman's last things it is much more humble and at the same time much more profound and enjoyable and rich and both scientific at the same time as being speculative and yeah no i i can't remember the name of the short that also played at nyfl last year the i think indian short filmmaker with the monkeys and the rocks slow oh, shift by shambhavi call that's great as well. <laughs> Actually, that has shots of rocks crumbling set to sort of eerie music, and it works wonderfully. It actually, so yeah, <laughs> we're going to counter-program Architecton. Um, maybe we can talk a little bit about a film that is just uh, very different, but I think as, in a way, ambitious, which is Christine Ango's A Family, uh, as we're talking about some documentaries. Uh, I talked about it a little bit on yesterday's podcast, but I know Beatrice and Giovanni and Jordan, like all of us have seen it. I don't know if it's a film. I mean, this is what I said on the podcast yesterday, which is that it is such a personal film in the sense that it clearly seems like an attempt to use film to exorcise very personal demons or to achieve closure on, you know, Ango's relationship with, her family and friends, that it's almost hard to have an outside critical perspective on the film. But I'm curious, I mean, Beatrice, if you want to say a little bit about Ango and the film and, and what you thought of it. Uh, yeah, I mean, Christine Ango is uh, sort of considered this the queen of French autofiction, which is sort of a kind of tradition within just like French contemporary literature. I mean, you think of like... Edouard Louis, uh, Annie Arnaud to an extent, but she definitely is distinct for her. I don't want to say that she's sensationalist, but the her subjects are quite provocative. I mean, like the big novel that is 
she kind of rehashes and, and reapproaches that this film is about is uh, her novel Incest from, I think, 99. But, you know, she also has had other books about, like, um, like she had this one book about her very torrid love affair with this sort of, this rapper <laughs> where there's, like, a famous passage where she like talks about like having elevator sex but like in extreme detail it's like quite um racy stuff but anyways like a lot of her books are about you know yeah just sex and like um and with incest in particular um it, it's quite interesting because the novel uh is obviously condemnatory but it also kind of speaks to like the mutual pleasure and the fascination and her conflicted feelings about, you know, having had this sexual relationship with her father when she was 14. And then I think they stopped like two years later, but then she re-engaged uh, with it when her late twenties while she was married. Um, and so, uh, you know, the novels I feel are this, they're just like this tangle of, of, of feelings and, that also kind of layer in, you know, the reality, but also fiction, you know, because like the auto fiction is also, you know, fact and fiction kind of messes together. And so, you know, I, I think with the film, which is about, it's essentially like she goes to her stepmother. Um, she goes to her ex-husband. She goes to her daughter and she kind of just confronts them about um, the situation while, and and she brings along Caroline Champetier, who's like the cinematographer as sort of this camera witness to the whole situation. And, you know, like the filmmaking itself is not like remarkable or anything like that. It, it's not like a visually rich film. But, you know, as you said, this act of, of witnessing and sort of demanding a, a kind of response, I, I find it, it's interesting that she kind of demands this how do I say this? Um, it's like she wants them to have a judgment. She wants them to like say exactly what they feel and something that is direct that is sort of demanding them to have like the courage to not kind of wade in this nest of like ambiguity, which I think is for her the place of literature and, and her own novels and like the just direct person to person situation, I think she's trying to carve that out as like a completely different thing that demands, you know, moral courage and precise judgments. And, and it's interesting, like, especially with her stepmother, she is very kind of French about it. Just like, well, you know, this was also kind of your choice. And like, clearly you've written about it in complex ways. That means that you yourself are kind of ambivalent, blah, blah, blah. She's like, yeah, that's true. But like, what do you think? Like, tell me exactly what you think, which is, I don't know. I, I found it quite powerful and, and really interesting just in the context of like the Christine Ango universe. Yeah, I think that what to me was really interesting is to see how she uses different mediums, how she's used the medium of the novel to address her experience and how she's using the medium of the documentary, which is, yes, the, I think the novels are, you know, she calls them novels, but there's also a discussion in the film about what does that mean? Does that mean it's fiction? Allow for a lot more of this complexity. She's able to uh, contrive a figure who is distanced from her, but also use words in a way that feel a little bit maybe removed from 
um, more direct reality. And here she uses the documentary form so pointedly as a confessional and confrontational form and is actually very insistent on everyone around her acknowledging that it was rape, you know? And she actually takes offense at the stepmother calling it a relationship. And she says, I never had a relationship with my father. He raped me, which is a little bit different in tenor from the books, obviously. I mean, actually a lot different in tenor. So to me, that was fascinating, like what the space of the image kind of opens up for her. And this is kind of her project, I think, making sense of this experience, which is not just that of sexual assault, but of this violation by your father, like an intimate family member, um, you know, how to grapple with that. And she comes off as very complex um she doesn't always even seem fair to the people around her you know the when she interviews her ex-husband and she kind of brings in his own experience of rape when he was a child he was raped when he was a child and she kind of brings that in conversation and they try to arrive at an understanding of how that shaped both of them and i mean they seem actually to have a very kind relationship but at the same time it's also it the film really is about her. So the stories of all these other people, her daughter, her mother, they get kind of sucked into the void of her own hurt. And that is discomforting. And sometimes, you know, I'm not sure what to make of it. But at the same time, it really does reflect how it feels to experience something like this, you know, like experience a hurt that really cannot be restituted or restored. And so you grasp for closure in a way that just feels always elusive. And you want this feeling of witness, of acknowledgement that is not so easy to come by either. And so in that way, it's very, its brazenness and its candor is very moving, but also at the same time, it isn't assimilable into any simple thesis. It's kind of just a representation of what it's like to experience a kind of wound like this and then just spend a lot of time trying to heal it or find ways to address it, which are comp. I mean, there's a, she barges into her stepmother's home and then has to think about the legal consequences of that. So there's just like, do you own, if you experience this, are you the owner of the story? Is your stepmother who had a relationship with your abuser is... What is her ownership to the story? I mean, very kind of thorny and open questions that, yeah, the film just kind of unleashes without necessarily resolving. Yeah, I mean, the choice to open with the stepmother interview is really interesting because it's so violent. She quite literally forces her way into the apartment. At one point, I feel there's even like punches or they, they seem to grab each other. There's violence and the, the stepmother does not want her there. There's the, You understand that they haven't spoken for a very long time and she is really violent against her stepmother when then finally she sits down to interrogate her and the stepmother is uncannily poised and friendly and even in a way that is very unsettling and then with each interview there's four in total uh it's, you, your your perception of her really changes over time and it's and she chooses to end with her daughter who's seems to have the only reaction that she sought from her from her peers and so you, 
yeah, this trajectory is fascinating to go along with her. And you have a feeling that in the 25 years since she's made this public, she's been treated so terribly. You have this, um, this awful talk show uh, segment that is an archival video, but had it been staged, had it been a fiction film, you'd probably think it was overwritten. They are so vicious against nasty, her. Nasty, completely nasty. I mean, I, I really struggled to watch that. And I, it also, you know, this post, not post, but like the world after Me Too became mainstream, it kind of goes to show even so recently because it's archival, it's from the last two decades, I believe, that, that we really didn't have any, like, understanding or kind of restrictions on how people talk to women who were victims of assault, who spoke openly about complicated relationships with sex. I mean, she's just called a whore, basically. And I mean, the yeah, undercurrent yeah. is just her being called a whore. And one guy just mocks her way of speaking. Uh, another woman asks her why she hasn't smiled the whole time. Yeah, no, I mean, her since she's kind of come to prominence in, in France, I mean, she's constantly the target of um, just very, like, defamatory speech, just her books. People kind of assume that because she is writing openly about these traumas that she's essentially just trying, she's like, it's an, done in an opportunistic way to sell books. And, and like, people, and, and in that talk show, people are always like, well, you wanted to sell books. And she's like, well, yeah. But that's actually, yeah, exactly. And like, so I think, yeah, no, she's she's very accustomed to just, you know, her public image being one that's sort of, yeah, completely exploited. Well, uh, another film that I would like to talk about, <laughs> that's, the, that's the best I can do, is... Um, is Who by Fire by Philippe Lesage, this French-Canadian filmmaker. That was, to me, one of the more surprising things I saw here. Because, first of all, that film played in Generation, which is a section of the Berlinale. I guess a, a kid's section, though. I Or youth. Um, yeah, okay, not a kid's. <laughs> Well, there uh, used to be Generation K something, right? There was like an actual kids section yeah, at one was, point. Yeah, there was, I believe. I, isn't it split like Generation Kids and Generation 14 Plus? Oh, or 14 maybe it was in the past. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's like youth general. more generally. Well, yeah. To but me, it's still 14 Plus is kids. I'm sorry. But yeah, it played in... I mean, the section always does have some gems. but this And this is a film about, in part, about teenagers. But it's also such an accomplished and mature and rich film that I was a bit surprised to see it in a section that's cordoned off in this way. Um, but yeah, Jordan, you want to set it up? Sure. I mean, I sort of love this film. It's, uh, uh, the, I don't know how many features he's made, but Lesage's last film, Genesis, was like a real surprise for me. And this film is like even more ambitious. Um, it deals with... Um, Basically, uh, a former collaborative film duo, so a director and a screenwriter who take uh, some family and friends out to a cabin in the woods in Quebec, and it turns into a, like a quasi cabin in the woods, uh, not quite horror film, but a very like tense and atmospheric cabin uh, fever film. Cabin fever <laughs> film, yeah. Even though there's no horror elements, but um, anyway, so. The whole idea behind the the trip, I guess, is to kind of uh, I don't know, reunite these uh, former collaborators who have fallen out because the director has moved on, I think, to making documentaries and this doesn't need a screenwriter anymore. And the screenwriter 
who is like a middle-aged alcoholic nerdy dad um is like now writing a kid's uh show called rock lobster um which comes into play later when there's a great unexpected dance sequence to uh the b-52s um but yeah it's an extremely strange movie it's essentially juxtaposing the the two adult former collaborators with uh the screenwriter's two kids um who have brought along a third a, f- a friend a guy friend and um his whole kind of i don't know sexual coming of age with the sister character so he's very interested in the in the sister and she's not as receptive but is still like very uh you know friendly with him and trying to like help him through his i don't know existential angst um but yeah the film just on like at a formal level is like super controlled super beautifully shot long sequence shots there's like three or four very long dinner sequences of just like extended arguments and dialogue um and that's kind of offset by these long languorous passages in the woods and like where there's no talking so it's a very like oblong shaped film and it's two hours and 45 minutes and it's just constantly surprising every every scene is like an idea i feel like massage like approaches every scene like how do i shoot this how do i stage the action and the dialogue in like an interesting way and it's just like i never knew where it was going and it, it ends up like in this moment that deals with an animal that is like somehow like super moving to me and it has, but I don't know, it's just built in a weird way throughout. And I don't even, there's so many weird things that happen throughout. It's hard to kind of describe. Um, but I know you liked it. Obviously you said as well, but yeah, I mean, I, uh, I actually talked to someone right before we recorded this, who said that they didn't like it. And one of the things they said, like nothing really happens. And that is both, Accurate and inaccurate in the sense that so much yeah. happens, but there is not one great event. The film right. doesn't have one great arc of uh, drama or narrative. So in a sense, it's like, and all the things that happen are on the brink of like banal and then like pathos ridden. But yeah. you know, the, it, this is a film about petty people and little resentments and desires, uh, little clashes between the teenagers, which is driven by this kind of adolescent, you know, romantic um, obsessions. And and with the adults, it's it also feels kind of adolescent. It's, you know, egos and feelings of hurt over little slights. And so it's really just tracing various little situations that arise from those little frictions but each little set piece is just so dense and also remarkably shot and framed and lit and there's a it's like there's a sense of choreography to the film without it being feeling overly labored but you just sense the director's vision so strongly that all these sort of disparate and almost meandering elements still feel very cohesive and it, I think, is to the film's benefit that it doesn't have a more of an arc because it feels absolutely unpredictable, like in terms of genre, in terms of what is going to happen in, in terms of the relationships of the characters. It's just entirely unpredictable while also feeling very controlled, which is, I think, a rare thing to encounter in a narrative film. Yeah, I mean, it really is a series of set pieces almost and each one becomes stranger than the last and like i mentioned before there is a couple of musical numbers sequences which i come out of nowhere almost and the characters like break the fourth wall sort of and start singing and they all start 
all start dancing at one point. And then there's a, a really great moment at the end where the, the, the sister character starts singing uh, in front of a fireplace. And it's just like... Yeah, and that know. one is notable to me, especially because first non-diegetic music starts playing like on the soundtrack, but then she starts singing diegetically to that music. So there's just... Even though this is just two, the two kids sitting in front of the fireplace after a... <laughs> a very dramatic and devastating day. But these simple scenes are made interesting through these little flourishes and gestures and experiments with form that are not very showy, but are very still surprising. Yeah, and we're talking about it as, a, you know, very, sounds very dramatic and it is at moments, but it's also super funny. Like I was laughing a lot, of, especially with the kids and the, the, the brother's friend who kind of comes in and disrupts this situation and gets into some funny situations with the sister. Um, but yeah, it's a, yeah, I don't know. Just, I, I think Lesage is building a very unique corpus of movies about young people. Like, I don't know many people who are like doing things about teenagers in such like an interesting way. That's not about like, I don't know, that, that takes a form into such consideration. Yeah. So to me, just like one of the big like highlights of the latter half of the festival. I agree. Um, I would love to talk about a film that in some ways is similar, uh, which is Matt and Mara, which is in Encounters, a film of completely different scale and style. This is a very, it's an 80 minutes Encounters. Uh, this is an 80 minutes Canadian indie and not French Canadian, Cana yeah, the other Canadian, but not French Canadian. It's in Toronto, I believe. Um, and it's by Kazik Radwanski, you know, reuniting with Dara Campbell. They're, you know, they made the last film they made, Anne at 3,000 feet, uh, circulated pretty well. But it is also unpredictable in scene to scene. And it also describes kind of uh, situations that arise out of unfulfilled desire and romantic confusion. And... In contrast to the Lasage, which is such a big film and so much happens and he's able to rein it all in. And in contrast, Radwanski's film is so simple and in such little happens in such a short runtime and he's able to make that feel very engaging and rich. Uh, Beatrice, you saw it? I did. Um, yeah, I mean, on the one hand, uh, there's it kind of follows a kind of familiar template of... of uh, within like indie dramas of, of uh, two people. And in this case, I think of Dara and Matt Johnson, it's, we know that they used to date in college, Dara, um, Mara. Mara. Oh my God. <laughs> it's, it's hard because that's true. Oh, that's well, he, true. Is, he is Matt Johnson in the film though, which yes, is kind of funny. Is <laughs> Anyways, but they're both, um, liter like, uh, Mara is a literature, a creative writing professor, but we see that she's not, particularly successful she hasn't really published much but you know she's got this job matt johnson is um he's written a book called i think what is it like rat king or you know <laughs> some like sort of uh you know broy lit guy um who uh, there's one point where he like speaks to tamara's class about like port no noise complaint and just like kind of talking uh, you're just kind of burying yourself because that's how people will like buy your books and take you seriously blah 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 um but anyways um they they reunite after a while and and mara is married to an experimental musician uh she has a child um 
But there's you know, a suggestion, and then that's this is built out throughout the film, that there's sort of a disconnect there. Um, and I think part of it has to do with kind of her own insecurities as as an artist, as a as a creator. Um, and Matt Johnson, who is more successful just like by sheer force of his charisma, <laughs> he kind of <laughs> or you know argue ar arguably <laughs> charisma <laughs> or i don't know his idiosyncratic nature kind of draws it out of mara a bit uh allows her kind of kind of to function in a way where it's okay for her to expose her vulnerabilities and so you know the film is just sort of these little vignettes of of them just wanting to hang out and and do things like they go visit his sick father they go to this a uh, little party thrown by somebody in, in Mara's department. They just kind of do things together. And there's something, there's a sort of a cozy, sweet energy between them, but but not in uh, a treacly way. I, I actually vibe with it. And I'm someone that doesn't really like soft films. <laughs> so like the fact that I was won over to it was, I, I think, a, quite a triumph. Um, but anyways, and then they ultimately go on this road trip uh, to this conference that uh, Mara is speaking at. And so they, you know, it's very sort of delicately just opening both of these characters up and allowing them to kind of have these broader but unspecified conclusions about the trajectories of their lives. Um, yeah, I really liked it too. Um, I think it's just like a quietly like insightful movie about like people reuniting and like feelings that might still be lingering between a former couple. Um, but like from, from like a formal standpoint it you mentioned before at the beginning how it uh as opposed to Lo, the Lasage film it's a little more casual but that's even I think in contrast to Kaz's other films which had been quite rigorous like er, his early films like Tower and How Heavy This Hammer were quite rigorous and almost they were sometimes hard to access in some way because they were almost oppressive in there that, that's the style this is much more loose I think it befits the the relationship and their their dynamic um which I think is great. I, mean, I think these are two of their best performances, if not both of their best performances. They're just like so Absolutely. natural together. Like, and Dara's already great usually in everything, but this is like, I don't know, so, so something so great about her. Uh, this I don't know her con inner conflict. Uh, yeah, yeah her, this performance felt special to me when yeah. I saw it. I think the camera is on her face for so much of it, and yeah. yeah, there is this casualness, but you also see that everything has been carefully like shot designed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think for sure. Um, yeah. Just because, yeah, the angles are very specific. The way scenes end and begin or are cut off, it it all feels very intentional, but it has this like wonderful looseness to it. And this is a perf this is a very performance driven film. Yeah. And uh, and Matt's humor in the film is much more natural and uh, easy to uh, get on with. I think than some people some people have some issues sometimes with his like comedic sensibility in his own work films as a director. But this is much more like it works Such perfectly. As Blackberry, which I saw last yeah. year at this festival. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it's just I don't know. I just had a good. It was like a moving film, and there's a great scene at the end when they are at the conference where like you know these people are not dating each other, but they are out together and. Matt Johnson treats the situation one way. Dara is assuming it might be another way. And there's an argument and you can see both sides in a way, but, but they don't see the other sides. And it's just, I don't know. It, it has like a real like in, uh, thoughtful way of approaching this kind of familiar material, but it is somehow works really well because of the writing and the performances, I think. 
All right, so let's close this out, not just this podcast, this whole series of podcasts, <laughs> with uh, uh, the Travis Wilkerson film that Giovanni and I saw. I know that sounds a bit anticlimactic because it's kind of a smaller film that I like, but I have reservations about, but I think it's a film worth talking about. It's called Through the Graves, The Wind is Blowing. Uh, Gio, want to describe it? Sure, it's... Um... I think he was living, um, Travis Wilkerson was living in Split, Croatia for a short period of time and decided to make a documentary about his time there from his um, perspective. Like he, he introduces himself uh, in the very first scene. He films himself. He's like, he, yeah, he talks about himself. So his perspective is very felt throughout, but he tells the history, the cyclical history basically of fascism and anti-fascism in Croatia and Split specifically. And there's this weird concept built in where there's a, a policeman, supposedly, but the credits credit him as a performer. And a Serbian um, a friend who we saw it with then told us that, in fact, the, the guy is a, is a local director. And it's this funny figure, this character, the policeman, he's very unbelievable as a policeman. He's very cool looking. He has this like black trench coat-like coat and cool sunglasses and Travis Wilkerson. It's, it's wannabe cool. He's not cool looking. He's like styled himself after yeah. detective TV shows, but is like awkward and bumbling. Yeah, yeah. and he has this weird affect, this, this very ironic delivery, very Balkan sort of dark, dry humor. And he's telling about a series of murders of tourists, which that's actually true. These, these are all true cases and they're all unsolved. And he complains about the bureaucracy and the corruption that are keeping him from solving these murders. And so you have, yeah, these two dimensions. He keeps uh, uh, cutting back and forth between that and the history of fascism and anti-fascism and split from... I think he starts around World War II till the present day. Yeah, and I think uh, I really love the scenes with the detective because they're very funny. The way he describes these murders is witty in a kind of crude way and it gets at also the local animosity towards tourists, a lot of whom are Europeans who come and just are kind of, you know, disrespectful and drunk. There's some actually <laughs> a montage of internet uh, footage off tourists in Split and their antics, which really is um, hilarious and also disgusting, that, that particular montage. I think these scenes where he is contemplating landscapes and buildings in Split and then talking about their historical background, I also found very compelling. He has a way of narrating these things that is while being dense and full of details, is also very absorbing and fleet, you know, and his delivery, there's... I don't know, there's something, there is a genre, obviously, inflection in this film and the stylization of the detective. And there's also these montages with sort of, I don't know, a score, a set to like metal and with uh, flashing text on screen that kind of looks like something out of a music video. So there's this punkish, very fun element, even though the histories he's recounting are so disturbing and... Um, the parts that I didn't like, there are parts where he brings himself into it a little more prominently. He takes his children on a tour of this monument next to these mass graves where a concentration camp once stood, including a camp 
for children that was the only one of its kind. It's pretty horrible. And then he ruminates on how he has traumatized his children by bringing them there and also on his own family history, his ancestors who were in the KKK or were one of the ancestors was a German soldier. And similar to like Architecton a little bit, that the grandiosity of this. And it also felt like very, you know, North American, which is you go to a place and you relate its history and you have to kind of make it about yourself and talk about your own complicity. I mean, that's what when we, our Serbian friend was like, yeah, I love it when Americans come and tell me about my history. I found those bits a bit frustrating. But I think other than that, um, this is a very... It's also, the film is also a, a, at the end, the end credits, two interesting things. One, it thanks Mark Paranson and Carlo Chatrian as believers of cinema. And it also pays tribute to Zelimir Zilnik, the Yugoslavian black wave filmmaker, pioneer. Uh, and the film opens with a scene that is a direct homage to uh, Zilnik's black film, the short film. And so it's a very dense film with a lot of references, with a lot of history, what, which is also very humorous and moves quickly and is very moving. So I think it actually um, does something quite accomplished and is is worth seeking out, I would say. On that note, we're done. Finny. <laughs> Thank you uh, to all three of you for joining me on podcasts this whole week and helping me close it out. I'm wishing you all some rest, safe trips back home from Berlin. Uh, and yeah, I'll see you at the next one. Thanks, see ya. Bye. Thank you, see ya. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. 